Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hi, and welcome to That Anthro Podcast. I'm your host, Gabriella Campbell, and today... For the first ever episode of the podcast, we have a very special guest. Her name is Amy Anderson, and she's a graduate student at UC Santa Barbara. So I've had the wonderful opportunity to not only have Amy as a teacher, but to also work alongside her as a research assistant. And she is doing some fascinating and groundbreaking research at UCSB. Amy received her BA from UNC in Classics and Archaeology and is currently working on her PhD at UCSB in Integrated Anthropological Sciences, where she is conducting research on disease ecology, paleopathology, and the impact of disease and nutrition on skeletal tissues in both living and past populations. Today, she is going to talk to us about her research, her work with the Chumani Health and Life History Project, as well as some of her own fieldwork experiences. I think this is going to be a great episode, and I hope you enjoy. So without further ado, please welcome Amy Anderson. Hi, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm so stoked to be here. So when I met you back in January of 2019 as my osteology teacher, one of the first questions that I had to ask you was about field schools. And I really wanted your opinion on experiences and field work. And you were actually very helpful in preparing me for the one that I attended this past summer in Spain. So to start off the episode, I wanna to talk to you about some of your undergraduate field work experiences, specifically in Ostapalia, Greece. Would you like to tell us maybe a little bit about that site and then we can get into the more details? Sure, yeah. So um, Astapalia is um, kind of a, an, an amazingly unique opportunity for, for students who are involved in osteology um, because it's an infant cemetery. Um, and last I checked, it was the largest known infant cemetery in, in the archaeological world. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and the, the excavations there are run by University College London and, and Simon Hilson and Anna Clement uh, were the, the co-directors when I was there. Um, and um, so the, the cemetery itself is on the hillside of the small island in the Dodecanese. It's the smallest inhabited island there. It's gorgeous Mediterranean. This, everything's a postcard. Um, but the cemetery is on a hillside and all of the, the children are buried in amphorae. So these are reused uh, vessels that, that would have been uh, storage vessels for uh, uh, olive oil or, or wine um, in being shipped different places. Um, so the site's quite interesting because um, as the osteologists there, you're not excavating on the hillside, you're doing micro excavations 
of these burial containers that have filled with sediment and, and have tiny infant skeletons in them. So you're in a lab setting, excavating with dental tools, uh, quite small, fragile remains. Were all of these remains under one years old, or is there a certain age parameter that defined what you were excavating? So when I was there, I think the oldest individual that they had found was around two, two and a half. But most of them are um, neonates, you know, just newborns um, yeah. and, and preemies. Um, yeah, definitely in the infant range. <laughs> and it, how is it different in your other experiences um, excavating adult and juvenile remains? What are the biggest challenges um, or differences? Hmm. Well, one, it was definitely cushier because we were excavating inside. Mm, <laughs> um, that's the, a rarity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a lab on the top of a hill with like a Mediterranean breeze and a view of the ocean. It was kind of um, unreal. <laughs> um, so uh, as as physical labor, um, it was a lot easier than, than other excavation situations, which are, are usually pretty um, challenging physically. Um, it was also, the, I think, the emotional impact of excavating infants is quite different um, because the, the context of their, of their death uh, is sort of more, more immediately clear and the, the emotions of the people who would have been grieving their death um, seem more um, accessible, although, of course, that's, you know, it's all all your own imagination. Um, but there's sort of like a, a very like poignant sadness to, to yeah. you know, holding bones that are just so tiny. Um, but it's also really important to, to learn because infant skeletons look pretty drastically different from adult skeletons. And um, in excavation contexts where people aren't specifically trained to identify them, they often get misidentified as animal remains, as faunal remains. Um, and of course, for anyone who's interested in forensic work, juveniles end up in the forensic record upsettingly often. And so being able to identify them and to estimate um, age precisely um, is really crucial to finding um, missing individuals. Um, so I wouldn't say that I enjoyed it more than excavating adults, um, but it was a really formative learning experience in my osteological training. And I feel really fortunate to have gotten the opportunity to work at that site. And I believe there's still ongoing that field yes, school. Yes, they are. It yeah. still is an ongoing field school. So if anyone's interested, it's Ostapalia Greece. And what are some of your fieldwork must-haves? The number one for me that you recommended was dissolvable electrolyte powder, and that was a lifesaver. Yeah, I've gotten heat stroke um, more times than I'm, I'm really comfortable <laughs> admitting. Yeah. Um, so learned that lesson a little too late. Um, but uh, fieldwork must-haves. Um, you know, after about like five weeks, I think, and depends how long your field season is, but um, homesickness sets in and no matter where you are and what food you're eating and how good the local food is, like everyone has their home comfort foods. Mm -hmm. um, and I know for a lot of the, the people I've been in excavation situations with, it's like burritos, Mexican food, everyone's really yeah. craving it. Um, but my family's from South Africa, so our like home comfort food is curry. 
So I always mm. pack curry powder. <laughs> and just, well, that's easy to transport. Yeah, exactly. So like, just in case I get the opportunity to cook some of my own food, because you never know what the what the setup is going to be uh, for you know group dining, etc., with the yeah. field crew. Um, but I, I like to pack like a range of, of spices so that I can, I don't know, I, I really like spice up any dish. Yeah, you know, like add some, some comfort or some uh, versatility or diversity to the to the flavor palettes in front of you because food you can get very food focused in the field, mm-hmm. especially if it's like physically difficult environment or socially difficult because I'm quite an introvert and field situations are usually like very intense with the social interaction (laughs) um so having your creature comforts is quite important to like maintaining your your general sanity on the field um so i also love to pack like a little spa treatment you know face masks or whatever so i can like lock myself away for at least one afternoon and like feel a little bit more human (laughs) um i'm gonna take that advice for next time (laughs) yeah yeah, my skin suffers every time I go into the field, whether it's, you know, dry and dusty or hot and humid yeah. or whatever it is. And I just feel like a gremlin after a couple of weeks. So um, being able to reset is really important. <laughs> That's great. And what yeah. is your favorite location so far, Ben, to do field work in? I mean, Astapalia was really cush. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was it was gorgeous. Um, but um, my first field experience was in Eastern Crete. Um, oh. Yeah, we were excavating a, a, a cemetery associated with a Minoan palace, um, and so that was I was I was quite starstruck by by all of that. Um, just, it was glorious, um, but the landscape there really. Um, really affected me really got to my heart because it's it's that sort of I guess we have it in Santa Barbara too I think it's possibly part of the reason I ended up coming here but it, it has that you know Mediterranean um yes. rugged mountain feel um that really reminded me of, of South Africa and so it really got got under my skin and into my heart and I would love to have um an excuse to go back there um even as a as a tourist sometime, but yes. it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Such a rich archaeological history on that island. Oh yeah. yeah. And Stepping Greece on ceramics general. every couple of steps, you know, oh, it's just, wow. it's everywhere you walk. Yeah. Well, moving on, since you've started your PhD at UCSB, you've become really involved in uh, using data from the Chumani Health and Life History Project, which mm-hmm. for some of our viewers, listeners <laughs> that may not know. Um, it's one of the largest ongoing research projects at UCSB in tandem with other universities. And the Chumani are an indigenous foraging population in Bolivia. And the Chumani Health and Life History Project spans many areas of research, including ecology, biodemography, and anthropological research, as well as providing medical care to the Chumani people. So what sort of data have you been using from this project for your research? Okay, um, this is such a such a rich, uh, rich data set. Um, and such a such, a, again, a fantastic opportunity. I've been so lucky to, to be involved yeah. with the projects that I've gotten that I've tapped into. Um, so 
I've actually, I've been focusing on, on computed tomography data. So CT scans, CAT scans um, of uh, older Chimane that um, were taken or obtained as part of a study um, spearheaded by my advisor, Dr. Michael Gervin, um, that was looking at aging in a subsistence population, um, specifically uh, looking at uh, Alzheimer's and dementia risk and also cardiovascular disease, just sort of tease out a bit whether those things are um, inescapable uh, parts of, of human biology of aging or, or whether there's a significant uh, lifestyle component to them um, that, yeah, that we can, uh, we can tease out by looking at, at people who are um, living non-industrialized lifestyles. Uh, and so there are all these existing scans. And one thing I try to do a lot with my work is, is to um, get the most out of data that already exist, because data like that are really, um, <laughs> there's a lot of, in, of, of investment to, to create those data. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think there's sort of a scientific ethical responsibility to, um, to get the most out of what we have before we before we go get more you know um i agree and that's what's so cool about uh the chimani project is that it does span so many different topics and areas of study and the amount of research that's been produced from it is insane yeah i mean the fact that it, it's a longitudinal study and that it's been going for as long as it has is is mm -hmm. such a yeah, it's, that's a really incredible opportunity. Um, and how many years has it been going? I don't recall seeing mm, in my research. I'm gonna get this wrong. Um, oh. I think it's 17. It might be 18 by now, um, but wow. they're coming up on 20 years. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, um, and so I've been looking at um, the heads. They have head scans and chest scans, and I'm focusing primarily on on the cranial scans. Um, because I'm, I'm really interested in um, skeletal uh, indicators of disease processes that we can see um, in the cranial vault and the orbital roofs. Um, and so those are things that are typically looked at in archaeological contexts and don't get a lot of attention in, in clinical contexts and are, are typically seen as being absent um, in, in extant populations and living people. Um, and I think that they may be overlooked instead. And the only way to really understand what they mean for individual health, for people who lived with them, is to look at the health of people who currently are living with them, right? When you can uh, get a sense of, of how they are feeling and, um, you know, what they're able to do um, day to day um, and see what kind of functional cost there is, what kind of... Um, diseases these things are associated with um, down the line. Um, so I'm really only able to do that because there's all this longitudinal health data um, with the project. So we have uh, biomarkers uh, from uh, from blood. We have anthropometrics, so I can look at you know uh, stature as a as a proxy for um, growth um, and and health in the developmental period. Um, and, uh, we have sort of self-reported health scores from individuals, you know, how are you feeling? How do you feel about your own health? Um, and 
Yeah, it's um, I keep finding new aspects of the of the data from the project that that makes sense to integrate into into my project, um, which I'm gonna have to circumscribe at some point so I can I can get a PhD. <laughs> Um, yeah, the list is getting long. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's true. Um, yeah, but um, especially with with COVID uh, happening right now and that delaying uh, research plans and things, um, I think there's a lot of room for flexibility in what becomes part of the dissertation and what is just part of a, a larger program of research that I continue afterwards. Because I hope to continue working with the Chimani project in different, different avenues. Yeah. And you actually have plans to travel to Bolivia to work uh, there uh, should travel conditions allow. Tell us about that. Um, why are you going and how long do you plan to stay? Right. Okay. So um, there is uh, a project that uh, John Stieglitz, who's at the university, sorry, at the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse and Brigitte Holt at uh, UMass Amherst um, are, are leading. Um, and they're looking at um, bone density over the life course and also um, cross-sectional geometry of long bones. So sort of the, mm. the shape of, you know, the, the tibias and femurs and, and things. Um, of individuals of all ages and both sexes um, in the population because um, most of the studies on osteoporosis and on the protective effects of physical activity um, on, you know, mitigating osteoporosis risk um, have taken place, uh, you know, with athletes in industrialized contexts. And so there's a lot of room for... Um, investigating how how that plays out in uh in a non-industrialized subsistence population um and how physical activity um in younger ages at younger ages uh impacts risk for uh bone density loss and and you know bone fracture at later ages and so they were able to get um a big chunk of funding to get a peripheral quantitative computer tomography machine, so PQCT, that takes just a single slice. Um, so instead of like a full head scan, which is like, you know, 250 yeah. slices um, stacked up together, it's just one slice. So you get a cross section. Um, and so that's incredibly minimal uh, radiation exposure. And so uh, we're able to... Um, to scan uh, children as well as adults, which we can't do with the other scans because it's, you know, we got to pass too much exposure yeah. to radiation. Yeah. Um, and so the idea there is that we're going to scan a cross section of the population and connect it to um, behavioral data. So they've already been collecting data on on a sample of, of individuals who have been wearing uh, respirometers and um, activity monitors. So we have a sense of their, um, their physical activity levels um, and, and, you know, what they're doing with their time and sampling across the dry season and the wet season. And so we'll be able to collect, connect some of that data to what we see um, in the appearance of the, of the bone itself. And um, so the data collection for that, I'll be the one down there actually 
running the PQCT machine um, and, and collecting the, the scans. Uh, and we estimate that once we get down there, it should take about six months to scan the, the sample that we want. We're aiming for a little over 700 people. Um, and we have to bring them all into the, to the town, to the clinic where we'll have the machine. And so we'll be transporting people from individual villages. Um, they're sort of dispersed villages along the Maniki River um, in, in lowland Bolivia in the Amazon. And so there are some logistical difficulties with transportation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially during that the wet season. That project sounds fascinating. <laughs> it should be really cool. Um, and yeah, there are, again, a lot of possibilities there to connect, you know, biomarkers of bone turnover um, with, uh, you know, physical activity and bone phenotype um, and, biomarkers of bone turnovers is one chunk of my dissertation project that I hopefully will be able to get to whenever lab work is allowed to resume. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that'll be soon um, so that we you can get moving forward on this project. I can't wait to hear about it and hear more about the results and everything. Thanks. Maybe let's transition into discussing your dissertation. Mm -hmm. Um, something for our audience to hear is uh, Amy describes her research as triangulating data from medical data, translational research, and archaeological sites in both living and ancient populations. So how has using this data allowed you to answer your research questions in new ways? Thank you for that question. <laughs> okay, um, so... I, my background is in bioarchaeology, and I'm specifically interested in the skeletal biology of, of disease, you know, how health impacts the skeleton. Um, but, uh, you know, archaeologists, when they, when they talk about health, they're really, they're looking at the bones 99% of the time. That's all they've got to, to ascertain um, health from. And um, so the baseline for what we can determine about health from the skeleton often comes from the, the medical clinical literature, but um, there's not a ton of incentive for physicians to document um, like all of the skeletal uh, correlates of disease because they're not the most sensitive or informative diagnostic indicators for, you know, determining um, what, what is giving someone pain and how to help them feel better. Um, so it makes perfect sense that that information just typically isn't out there in the literature. Um, but I think uh, because it's not there, um, archaeologists are quite limited in, in what we can say about, um, you know, health, what we can infer about health from the skeleton. And so I think especially with... Um, advances in medical imaging technology that have happened in the last decade or so um, with, with CT scans and the, um, the incredible resolution that you can get on these things now. Um, there's a new opportunity. Without it being invasive. Exactly. Um, less invasive, um, not destructive to archaeological remains as well. Um, and it gives you sort of a, a comparable um, platform, right? You can look at a, a CT scan of um, archaeological remains and CT scan of a living individual and, um, 
you know, there's some things that you can't compare absolutely directly, like bone mineral density, um, for various reasons I won't get into. Um, but you can, you can really get a sense of like skeletal, uh, shape and the distribution of bone and um and you can you can compare those things pretty directly and so there's a lot of space i think that's newly created to really investigate um how health is connected to you know how how our our lived experience builds a skeletal phenotype um in terms of you know pathological experiences um and so that's that's the space that I really want to inhabit so we can get yeah. better at inferring health in past populations and also just, just have an integrated approach to the skeletal biology and, and health um, through time because the, the skeletal record is sort of a continuous line of, of data, you know, from, from then to now. Everyone's got a skeleton and we can, um, it, I think it would be, just so cool to to be able to get more information, right? You know, the dead can tell tales, but we have to know how to read their read their books. Um. <laughs> and also, just the concept of integrated lines of evidence and different. You know, you cross into biology and chemistry quite a bit. I think it's really important in science today that we communicate across these you know these these false boundaries of oh you're an anthropologist or oh you're a biologist or you're a bioarchaeologist it's really important to kind of connect that data and see what you can infer from all the lines of evidence yeah my approach has generally been that you find the question that you're interested in and then you figure out what skills you need and where you need to go in order to answer that question and you know <laughs> whatever those are that's that's what's on your to-do list and then you just pursue it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you can worry about how to how to brand yourself or market yourself later, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Should we talk a bit about what are porous cranial lesions and how they're formed? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, criba orbitalia and parotid hyperostosis. For those who may not be familiar. Yes. Um, they gave them these these big. Um, <laughs> yeah, criborbitalia in the Latin and product hyperostosis in the Greek. So uh, not being consistent with their chosen terminology there in the in the grand tradition of, of anatomical terminology. Um, yes. Yeah, so these are... Um, uh, the definition has sort of drifted through time, but now um, I think the preferred terminology is shifting to just saying porous cranial lesions, which is a descriptive term that's trying to be as straightforward as possible. Um, so these are, um, this is sort of a pathological appearance of bone where you look at it and you go, oh, that's not normal. And it um, shows up on the cranial vault, so sort of the, the top of the skull, and then also in the, the top of the eye sockets, the orbital roofs. And it's really just describing bone that looks kind of spongy or porous or sieve-like, um, pitted. Um, and so <laughs> that bone is being resorbed due to a processes which you are investigating, such as anemia. Yeah, it, um, so 
bone surface can look porous um, because the bone is being resorbed or, or because um, it's new bone uh, that's being laid down. Um, and historically, uh, most of these lesions have been attributed to, uh, to anemia. Um, but uh, I think we don't really know what the, what the biological pathways are to that skeletal formation. So um, when you can tell that the porous lesions themselves are due to expansion of the bone marrow space um, and resorption of the, of the bone uh, directly on top of that marrow space, um, the idea is that it's, it's due to anemia and um, an expansion of the red blood cell producing marrow at the expense of the bone that's right next to it. Um, but part of what I'm interested in is trying to trying to uh, discern more directly um, what exactly is causing it, whether it's um, whether it tends to be anemia or whether it tends to be infection, and if it's anemia, um, you know, is it anemia of inflammation? Is it um, dietary iron deficiency? Is it parasitic infection um, that causes blood loss, like hookworm? Um, and so, um, I'm going to try to get at some of that. Um, sorry, I feel like I, I should have a pithier way of, of explaining all of this by now because it's been a couple of years. It's okay. It's a complex, it's a complex subject. And that's why research like you're doing is important because it provides more insights into what's going yeah. on. And one day there will be an exact definition. Yeah, I think I'm right at that point in the in the PhD pipeline where I'm just so close to it that if you ask me to talk mm -hmm. about it, it just expands into like total word vomit because um, I haven't, you know, I don't have my results. I haven't like written up the full dissertation and turned it into a, you know, a polished job talk just yet. But, you know, check back in in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure big things are coming. And one of those is an article that you're currently working on about CRIBA findings from CT scans of contemporary New Mexican children. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so this is, I guess, another example of finding existing data and, um, you know, approaching a question from, from as many angles as possible. Um, so this is a collaborative project that's being led by Lexi O'Donnell, who, who got her PhD from University of New Mexico. Um, and so uh, this is a, a collection that's about to be opened um, and available to, to all researchers who, who make data requests. Mm. Um, and it's uh, full body digital autopsies, so full body high resolution CT scans. Um, of individuals from the New Mexico Office of, of the Medical Investigator. Uh, so, of course, when you have adults, that's all individuals who died under suspicious circumstances, um, and that hence, hence the autopsies. Um, but with the children, pretty much all, all children, uh, all child deaths in the state are considered, you know, suspicious. And so uh, the, the children are quite a representative mortality sample of, you know, um, all the children who die in the state. Uh, so it's, again, quite an emotionally difficult data set uh, to work with, especially because these are not dry bones. You can really see 
um, all the, the soft tissue indicators of, of trauma and, and disease uh, on these individuals. Um, but they're all de-identified scans. Um, so the anonymity of the individuals is protected. Um, and uh, I, I did not do the direct data collection. There was more, more theoretical uh, involvement in this project. But so we collected uh, data from the CT scans looking at porous cranial lesions in this sample of contemporary children, mortality samples. So not living individuals, but still um, contemporary, which is uh, unusual. And the, the baseline hypothesis, right, is that we won't find it because it, it doesn't really exist in, in modern populations. Mm -hmm. But we did end up finding um, orbital roof lesions in about 20% of the sample and cranial vault lesions in about 12%. Um, yeah, wow. uh, it's particularly high. Um, How large was the sample? So we had... 451 observable scans that were, you know, complete and, and worked for our purposes. Um, wow, 20% of that. Yeah, yeah, it is a lot. Um, and because it's it's a contemporary mortality sample, we know cause of death. And so the first thing we were interested in doing was seeing whether there's any correlation between uh, cause of death and, and porous cranial lesions. Um, which, of course, is not like a direct, like, you know, oh, correlation, therefore yeah. causation. Um, but mm -hmm. first of all, we're able to say, okay, individuals who died of natural causes compared to individuals who died of violent or accidental causes, um, what does the frequency of lesions look like in those groups? Um, because these lesions are supposed to be an indicator of, you know, of, of frailty, of physiological stress. And... Uh, Proof of concept, we did find that they're statistically significantly more common in, um, in individuals who die natural deaths. So that was a nice uh, thing to check off. And then uh, moving on to that, yeah, yeah, it was nice to get that. Um, and then looking at specific causes of death, we found a significant association between both orbital and, and vault lesions um, and respiratory infections, active respiratory infections at time of death. Um, yeah, so... Could that be related to reduced immune response? Um, yeah, yeah, it, it could, right? Um, we can now say that, at least in this context, um, there are sort of indicators of of risk of respiratory infection. And mm. so whether it's the respiratory infection some process um, going on as a result of respiratory infection that causes the lesions or whether it's a prior experience that causes the lesions but also heightens subsequent risk for respiratory infection. Um, it's hard to say and it's quite likely uh, both <laughs> depending on the, on the yeah. context. And so uh, we, we did some work thinking about pathways from you know, anemia and oxygen deprivation and inflammation and um, white blood cell proliferation. And, um, but I think the, the interesting thing there is like um, proof of concept, finding it in a contemporary population, finding the association with risk for respiratory infection. And I think that that also uh, guides uh, directions for, for future research on these lesions in contemporary populations, right? We'd probably expect to find them in populations and in, in higher frequency 
uh, among populations who experience high incidence of, of childhood respiratory infection. Just resubmitted that article, and so yeah, I can't wait to read it. Hopefully, um, like post revisions. <laughs> Thanks. And the next thing is looking at um, oh. at sex differences uh, because. Usually, as you know, in archaeological contexts, you can't distinguish um, in the entire males and sample. females um, until yeah. post-puberty. Right. So yeah. you can you can go for the adults, but the children are just sort of, they're all children. <laughs> we don't know boys, we don't know girls. They're just children. Um, but with this, we have um, indicators of biological sex. And um, we're able to look at... Um, childhood differences in the frequency of lesions, the severity of lesions, um, the association between lesions and mortality risk. And so I think we're getting some interesting patterns out of that, but the manuscript's not that far along, so I don't want to give any totally spoilers. Fine. We understand. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. For those of you My interested, pleasure. I will have Amy's webpage and her most recent article linked below in the description. So check that out. And great.